0: God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we invite you into our hearts, ask that you open our minds, give us clarity, take away all the things that distract, and bring us straight into your presence now. Lord, especially those among us who need a word of encouragement, Lord, I pray that you speak loud and clear this morning. I believe you already have. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Philippians 4 is our text. Uh, Rowdy read it through uh, chapter 4, 4 through 13. Um, I'll read parts of it uh, as well uh, at various points. But I want to do what sometimes I hesitate to do. I love doing it because I'm a Bible nerd, but I hesitate to do it because then I get accused of being a Bible nerd. But I, uh, I think in this case, the context of Philippians as a letter is actually, it adds to the power of what's happening in these verses right here, okay? And the context of the letter, and by the way, if you haven't read Philippians from front to back, like literally just kind of sat down, took 20 minutes, that's probably all it would take, uh, and to just read it, uh, it's four chapters long, I, I highly recommend this. Take an afternoon this afternoon and do it. Um, It's a powerful book. It's, It's really one of my favorite of Paul's letters, and the context goes like this. In chapter one, we learn that Paul is writing this from prison. He's he's in prison in this moment. At the very end of the letter, we learn that he might be in Rome. It actually talks about Caesar's household being part of uh, the people that Paul is encountering. It's possible, and by Caesar's household, we're we're talking, uh, we're, actually a a lot of people could be included in the household, if you remember me talking about households in the ancient world, uh, including uh, free people and slaved people, right? And so this would include quite quite a lot. But so Paul has access to some of Caesar's household somehow, uh, and he has actually managed to bring them to Christ, right? Uh, And so what Paul is doing uh, at this point in his life is quite powerful. But more than that, he's not only in jail, uh, he is, it seems, teetering on the edge of death. He's, uh, he talks about his own death and mortality a few times in the letter. Uh, one, in, in chapter 1, kind of the, the famous uh, passage, if, if you want to turn there, um, you know, is uh, verse 21, for me to live uh, is Christ, and to die is gain. And, and then he goes on and he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And he's like, that, that'd be great and all. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between life and death, is what he says. He says, my desire is actually to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, Right? And so here he is. He's writing a letter from prison. He seems to be on death's door. He mentions it a few times. And so you might think that this letter would be what? Filled with sadness filled with uh, you know, uh, a sense of, like, uh, like I'm about to, to leave. I, I need to, to manage some last things. But instead, what we get is not sadness. We actually get joy. It's the most joyful of all of his letters. He mentions rejoicing and joy countless times. It's literally on every page. is joy this, joy that. Rejoice here, rejoice there. And so we get a Paul who is in a place that is hard in life, a really hard place in life. No doubt he doesn't want to be in this prison, right? No doubt he doesn't uh, want to be on death's doorstep, and yet somehow he has this frame of mind to be able to write a letter in which he's talking about joy. The question, of course, is, (laughs) the question I kept asking myself, how does he do this, right? How in the world does this man, Paul, write a letter that is so joyful at this period in his life? It's certainly something that I need to to get an answer to, and I think you do too. I think we all want this answer in life. When life is is throwing us curveballs, how in the world... Can we remain joyful? How can we rejoice in the Lord always, as he says? How do we go about doing that? And the answer, it turns out, is what he calls a secret, right? A secret. Now, Laura already gave this away, which frustrates me. and she did it better than I'm probably gonna do it right here. Uh, I didn't think to use, uh, <laughs> she's great with the object lessons. I should do the object lessons. Uh, now she, uh, she had uh, the, what was it? Uh, oatmeal, yeah, thank you. Oatmeal is the word I'm looking for. <clears throat> uh, that's not where I was going with this. I was going with the TV show I'm currently watching uh, called Severance. I don't necessarily recommend it, but it's the kind of TV show uh, that I like for one specific reason. There's uh, reasons you shouldn't like it too, but the one reason I like it is it's filled with secrets. In fact, that's kind of like the premise of the show is you don't know what all the secrets are and as the show unfolds, so do the secrets and they begin to get answered over and then over and over again, right? I like this sort of television. It's like a mystery. Paul actually talks about mysteries quite a lot. I don't know if you know this. He uses the word mystery. Um, I should have counted it, but it was like, it's like 15 times. I'll give you three examples right here. Romans 16.5. He talks about a mystery in this way. He says, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. Paul is saying here, if you didn't catch it, that what Paul is given through revelation, a revealing from God, is a mystery that had been hidden forever Ages long past, and now he has the mystery, the secret, that he's opening up to everybody, right? The people he's writing to, and then everybody they preach to. And what is this mystery here? Well, it is definitely the gospel. The message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, is what he says. Or again, 1 Corinthians 2.7, he says, no, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery, it says, that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began, All right? So there's this long window of time where the mystery exists and then Paul unveils it and he has the secret that he then gives out. Last one, Ephesians, this uh, a little longer here, uh, chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, 2 through 6, he uses the word mystery here, um, actually quite a few times. This one goes like this. He says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by Revelation. As I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Here again, he's saying that Christ and, and the coming of Christ reveals this mystery. And he goes on, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. That indeed would have been a mystery and a secret that a first century Jew would have been surprised by, that the Gentiles, that they too are heirs along with Israel. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, he says, one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. There's quite a few more examples I could have pulled out, but I think you get the point. If you don't, the point is this uh, In Christ, a mystery of God gets revealed. a a secret of sorts, a mystery that has been waiting for the ages. The mystery itself, I would say, is probably worth a few sermons, and it's manifold. There's a number of pieces and parts to it. But Christ himself is most certainly at the center of the mystery. And through Christ, God is redeeming not just Israel, but the world including the Gentiles. So to recap the sermon as a whole, very quickly, Paul is imprisoned and at death's door, and yet he writes a letter filled with joy and inspiration. How? The answer is a secret. And so you should be asking, what's the secret has already been revealed to you, well, the secret goes like this. It shows up twice in our passage. It shows up twice in the passage. One time it shows up implicitly, and the, the second time it shows up explicitly, like, which is to say, one time he, he says it, he doesn't say it's a secret, but he kind of says it, and then the other time he says it out loud, that there's a secret. So the first time, Well, uh, it goes like this in chapter 4, verse 7. A passage you've probably heard before. I heard it a lot growing up. My guess is actually this whole Philippians 4, 4 through 13, there are lots of pieces in there that are memorizable. I I would commend this to you as well as an exercise uh, over the coming weeks is to memorize this whole passage. But anyway, uh, 4, 7 says the peace of God, well, it surpasses all understanding. We don't know how this peace of God works in our life, but it does, is what he's saying. And this peace of God, well, it will guard your heart and your mind. And then two more words, in Christ. I got stuck on the in Christ part. Because in a way, I feel like I can understand the rest of the passage. And, uh, and then it was like, it felt like he just kind of tossed on the in Christ at the end of it all. I think there's a purpose to it. Actually, I'm certain there is. And we'll get to it in a moment. But the simple idea is that the secret is that we have this peace about us. And it is available to us. And it's beyond explanation, and it has something to do with being in Christ. But now the explicit version of where he says there is a secret is indeed at the very end of all of this. He says it this way, and I'll read from my Bible here. I hope you've got yours too. If you turn to chapter 4. Just kind of keep it open for a while. He goes like this. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need. This is verse 11 now. Uh, he kind of starts off in a way that says, I don't really need anything from you all, just so we're clear. Uh, and he's not trying to be rude because he's about to explain why he doesn't really need anything. He's going to express later that he appreciates all they have given him and they have helped him. We're not going to get to that part today. But he says, I, I'm not really uh, in need from you. And he says, and this is the key, for I have learned in whatever situation, whatever situation, I am to be content. Boy, that's a powerful word, content. That is not something our culture teaches us. If anything, today, we are taught to be not content, right? I mean, this is what uh, marketing is designed for. All those commercials that are a barrage for us, right? They are they're teaching us to not be content with what we currently have and who we currently are, and instead are teaching us to say, you know, I really could use that new car, I really could uh, use that uh, new television or whatever it might be. And it begins to sow seeds of uh, what we call need, but really our wants, right? But Paul here, that's not what he's saying. He says, I've learned in whatever situation, I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low and... I know how to abound. I love that he says both of these. He doesn't just focus on the being brought low, right? He also says, I know how to abound. I know how to do life well when everything's going right. Both of those can be difficult in very different ways, right? Can't they? Doing life well when you're down low can be hard for its own reason, but doing life well when you're doing really well is another ball game altogether. And one that we don't really talk too much about, frankly. He goes on and he says, In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Just kind of. Piecing all of this out here, he says, need to get a Bible nerdy on you. Uh, in any and every, he, this is a, a repetition uh, of, of the same phrase. In any and in every, are this, it's the same word basically, back to back, and the same preposition in, back to back, and it's all unnecessary repetition except for one purpose. He's really wanting you to know that in all cases... He's probably saying to himself, I know I use words like all, all the time, but in this case, I really mean it, right? In all cases, in any and every circumstance, I have learned, our word here, the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, abundance and need. And then, if you ask me, what is the secret, Eric? I would say that he tells us the secret in verse 13. The verse that we all know so well, right? The one we've heard many, many times. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the secret, right? Through him who strengthens me, through God, through Christ, I can do all things. It's important uh, to tell you what this passage is not saying, because it's been used so many times, and you've probably heard it so many times, there might be some abuses out there, or at least misnomers as to what Paul is saying in this passage. And so I want to maybe correct a few of those before we get to what Paul is actually saying in verse 13. I think what this verse often is, or is understood to mean is that with Christ on my side, I can do whatever I want, and I'm going to succeed. And if If you think this is true, then I actually have some bad news for you this morning. I know I'm supposed to give the good news, but the bad news is that you're probably going to fail at some point. If that's how you understand this passage, that if Christ is on my side, I can do whatever I want and succeed, I don't think that's what this passage is about. If whatever you want happens to be outside the bounds of God's will— then you are not succeeding, quote, in Christ here. You're just going it your own way at that point. I don't think the verse is about God empowering you to be wildly successful in worldly terms. It's not saying that life is going to be a breeze and that you uh, shouldn't run into any troubles because Christ is strengthening you? I think this is where the context of the passage is of utmost importance. Paul is writing to us from prison at death's door about the difficulties of having both abundance and need. He's coming from a place of need, and he's saying, in all of these circumstances... Again, the emphasis is on all. All of these circumstances, I have figured out the secret, and that is Christ can strengthen me through them. I can make it through whatever life has to throw at me because Christ is strengthening me. This is a very different version than some sort of health and wealth, prosperity sort of deal where you just simply say, well, Christ is strengthening me, so I'm expecting to get uh, the, the, whatever I want in life. And, and you can fill in the details there for yourself because that's not usually how life works. So what is Paul saying? What is, what is Paul saying here? The all things that Paul can do... Right? I can do all things, he says. Remember, it's hearkening back to just the pre- previous verse where he says, I can do all, in all, in all. Right? He, he repeats the in all circumstances. He's saying something like this. In any and every circumstance, in all of the circumstances, in all that I do, in all that I face, whether good or bad, I can be content because God strengthens me. And so the secret, therefore, is that whatever terrible circumstance you find yourself in, and Paul clearly knows what these are, you can find contentment in God question, of course, is how? (laughs) What does this look like in reality? What does this look like? How do you tap into it all, so to speak? I've got a few suggestions here, three really, um, if you'll follow me. One is Paul seems to have uh, a different perspective on life, one in which he weighs eternal things as much Uh, weightier and more important than the temporary things of life. Questions to ask with regard to your worries, and and I ask with my own worries, is uh, sometimes I'll stop and I'll ask myself, on my deathbed, will I be worried about this, (laughs) right? Giving whatever concern it is in the here and now a, a lifetime perspective, when I'm, when I'm really dying at the end of my life, is what's going on now, is that going to be something that I should be worried about? I had a... Okay, I'm going to tell it. Uh, I, I, I had a lawn guy uh, chew me out this week. I'll just leave it at that. And for no good reason no names or anything. And it was, it was a very odd encounter, and it kind of threw my day off, honestly. And it had me worried all day. And at some point during the day, and I'll say, like, I mean, it, it, had, me, it had me worrying in a way that was not consistent with what Paul says uh, I'm capable of doing, right? And at some point I said, you know, when I am uh, on my own deathbed, prayerfully uh, in uh, many, many decades, uh, like, will I be thinking, like, that this event was, was a significant event in my life? And the answer is no. No, it's not at all, right? And, and placing whatever it is that worries you in a larger context, I think, is one way that Paul often looks at this, and it's not just your own life, it's, it's eternal life, right, which uh, makes the, uh, the context much larger still. And in doing so, we can ask ourselves another question, which is, where are you looking, right? Where is your gaze at? Is it so focused on the here and the now that you've somehow lost sight of the bigger picture, Jane Williams taught me the phrase, keep looking up, right? Keep looking up. What is God doing? A friend of mine recently asked me, what's Jesus doing in your life right now? I think these sorts of questions and these sorts of uh, uh, ways of thinking about life, they can help give perspective to whatever is, is going on in the here and the now. Along with this comes number two, which is having a resurrection hope. In some ways, I would say that this is the ultimate eternal perspective. If we're trying to kind of move away from the temporary perspective, the things that will fade, and into an eternal perspective, well, the resurrection hope is one way to do this. Paul's strength Well, it comes from God in Christ because he believes that Christ's resurrection is just the first among all resurrections. And if I am found in Christ, then I too have an eternal hope that exceeds anything the world can throw at me. Even death is an enemy that has already been defeated in Christ. The third and the the final part of this then has to do with faith. Faith. Um, uh, Jennifer Allcroft was teaching the youth uh, this week and uh, she she asked the question to the youth, uh, what what does faith mean? And it took everything within me to not jump in. I didn't. Uh, I just kind of, you know. Faith... I, if there's one word, that I, if I could substitute one word for faith in the Bible and just go through all the Bibles and take, take out the word faith, which has become a, a wily kind of word, and put a new word in there, it's the word trust. Trust, right? And it goes like this. Here's the logic of the gospel. God is setting all things straight. That's gospel writ large. And the question is, do you trust that God is doing that, right? Do you have, quote, faith that God is doing that? Narrowing it down a little bit, God is setting all things straight through the person of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Do you trust that that is actually happening, right? Do you have faith in Jesus, And so if the answer to both of those questions is yes, then sometimes we just need to get ourselves out of whatever this moment is that we're in and have this bigger perspective of what God is doing in history and through the person of Jesus and remind ourselves of just where we are and whose we are. We are in Christ. I am reminded that I am not alone in my suffering. Paul suffered. Christ suffered as well. But both of these men seem to have this higher perspective, a higher perspective that God is redeeming the whole of the world and the universe, and God is doing it through the person of Jesus Christ. And that, I think, is some encouragement that we all need. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of the cross. And God, we thank you for the power of the resurrection. Lord, if the cross did the work... It is the resurrection that gives us the hope. A hope that we too will someday find resurrection. That there will be full healing. That we will find ourselves in a place where you have set all things straight. Lord, we look forward to that day. And in the meantime, we trust. We have faith. We put our trust in you. And we say that whatever we are going through, God, whatever it might be, we know that your bigger picture is at play. And you are doing a work in and through Jesus. And as much as we are in Christ, well, then you are doing a work in us as well. We pray all this in Christ.